The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Just calm down. Has anyone ever told you those words? Just calm down. Those are the famous last words of any person who ever tried to help someone just calm down. Maybe you've tried it before, and if you're like me, it doesn't really work. It seems like the right thing to say in the moment, doesn't it? Someone's worked up, they're really excited, or they're upset about something, just calm down to no avail. Why is it so hard to get someone who needs to calm down to actually calm down just by saying it? Calm down. Just calm down. Try it with a two-year-old. It doesn't work. Try it with a 30-year-old. It doesn't work. Uh, Try it with an 80-year-old, and they might not even hear you. Uh, it, It doesn't work. Why is it so hard to get someone to calm down, who needs to calm down, but won't simply by telling them to calm down? Or what about this one? Freeze. Put your hands where I can see them. Maybe a little more effective, depending on the situation. But there's a real difference between telling someone to just calm down, commanding them to do something that seems humanly impossible, just calm down, and the command to freeze and put your hands up. And I think the effectiveness of these commands is in the nature of them. The first is commanding someone to do something emotional. Calm down. It's like telling someone who's sad, be happy. It's very difficult. It's rather ineffective. In the first, you know, you're asked with all these very difficult uh, philosophical questions, well, how does one actually calm down? And what does that mean? What does it mean to bring emotions and feelings from a heightened level of intensity down to a place of peace and level-headedness? Well, how do you do that? I mean, just, it's an it's a sh- interesting question. It's, it's an abstract idea. That's why it's difficult for someone who needs to calm down to calm down just simply by being told to calm down. You can't see calm down. You can't get calm down, can you? Uh, you can't find it anywhere. When you need to calm down, it's difficult to do that. It doesn't mean you shouldn't calm down, but it's not the same as put your hands up where I can see them. Well, I know I have hands. I know where up is. I know what I should do with my hands now. I should put them up. That command is effective because it is not abstract. It is not just emotional, but it is concrete. I know where up is. I know where my hands are and where I should put them. And in our passage today, Peter commands something that at first blush seems just abstract. How can, you, how can we do the thing that Peter, that God through Peter is commanding us as believers in Christ to actually do? And in our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 16, Peter commands what only Christ 
can create. He commands what only Christ can create. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, and we will read the text this morning to see what it is that God, through Peter, is commanding that apart from Him creating the ability and the desire to do it, is impossible on our own, but is essential for the life of a sojourner who is longing for and waiting for that day when Christ will appear and we will be with Him forever and ever. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter commands what only Christ can create, and what that is, is hope that leads to holiness. Hope that leads to holiness. To holiness. Hope that leads to holiness is all over in the Christian life. And the reason is, is because what we love to do as self-righteous, fleshy people, is we like to put the cart before the horse. We like to put the command to be holy before the thing that we need to actually make us holy and to help us live holy lives. It's really easy for me to read this text, and the very first thing that jumps off the page to me is, be holy as I am holy. I don't know about you, but that stands out to me, because I am drawn to commands, because I think in my flesh that if I can just get this command obeyed, then I'll be good. If I can just do whatever this text is telling me to do, then I'm good. 
But what I need is to be reminded of like that last song did about the story that we will sing for all of eternity, the one that is good for the lost and for the redeemed for all of eternity. I need to remember what it is that creates holiness and a desire for holiness in the first place. And that's exactly what Peter does in this text. He slows us down. He pumps the brake on our inclination to just look for the imperatives and to say, well, I'll do that. I can do that. And to get us to think first about what it is that Christ has done in us. God commands what only He can create. But He doesn't Leave us without hope for how to obey the command. He commands us to hope. And if we follow Peter's words, we will see that this is no mere emotion, just to be hopeful about things that may or may not come true. But it is our rock-solid confidence of things to come and of our sanctification. The hope that Peter speaks of is the very basis for our longing for eternity, for the promises that God has made that we will see those fulfilled, and that before then we will be continually made like His Son day by day. So the main idea is this this morning. Peter lays out, brothers and sisters, he lays out two commands for God's holy children. Two commands for God's holy children so that we will have hope continually and become who we really are in Him. So that we will hope continually and that we will become who we really are in Him, which is holy. And so God, through Peter, commands us to two things this morning, to hope and to holiness. God commands us through Peter to hope and to holiness. The first we see in verse 13. Set your hope, number one, set your hope fully on future grace. Set your hope fully on future grace. This is the first command in the passage. And I know what you're thinking. You've read this passage. You say, well, wait a second. Verse 13, it starts by saying, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. I've read that before in another translation. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's a less popular and a little uh, older school translation, but it's actually a really good illustration, and we'll look at it in a moment. But the first command, the first imperative in the text is actually the emotional one, the the abstract one. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Set your hope fully on future grace. But the first thing that we have to do when we come to a text like this is ask a question. And you've heard it a million times, but what is the therefore doing? What is it therefore? What is it serving in this text? Why is it there? Well, again, if you've never heard it, I'll say it for you again. A really great question to ask as you're reading your Bible is when you run into the word therefore is to say, why is it there? What does it mean? Always ask that question in your Bible reading. And and what therefore does is it gives us purpose statements and reasons for for what the author is saying now. He's saying, look back up, back up a little bit, see what's been said, and then read what's been 
read. It gives us purpose and reason for what the author is now saying. And in our context, we've been given, in the context of this passage, we've been given glorious reasons that our hope is in Christ, that we have real hope in Christ. Hope that does not disappoint, hope that isn't just wishful thinking, but hope for the fulfillment of promises made and of real historical evidence that Jesus really lived and He really died and rose and ascended to the Father. We have confidence in these things. Not just hope out of the blue, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. Look at those verses with me briefly to get the context for the therefore. For why the therefore is there. Verse 3. I'll just kind of skim through these. Look at the text with me. What are these reasons for hope? Well, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. God has given us great mercy in verse 3. God has caused us to be born again. Verse 3. God gave you a living hope. Verse 3. God raised Jesus from the dead, verse 3. In verses 4 and 5, God gave you an inheritance. And this inheritance is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And God is keeping it for you and guarding it for you, this inheritance of Himself in eternity. A salvation that is coming to you at the last time. And, to add on to that, in the meantime, verses 6 and 7, every trial, get this, every trial, every suffering, every single one, is being governed by a sovereign God so that, hear this saints, so that the tested genuineness of your faith will result in Christ ultimately glorifying Christians and giving them eternal life in His presence on the new earth, in His kingdom, when He comes again. The trial, the suffering that you are going through this very moment, seen or unseen, is effective. It is producing a genuineness in your faith, a confidence, a rock-solid confidence that the next time you suffer, you say, yes, I know He's faithful. I know He's good. I know this will not be wasted. It is storing up for me a glory that is going to be revealed on that last day. I will be with Jesus. I will not die and disappear forever and, and be eliminated from existence. I will be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when He comes again with His saints, you will be with Him. Your suffering, every trial is being governed. You must believe this or your suffering will, will devastate you. It is governed by the sovereign hand of a loving God. Every moment of it Every tear and every pain, every moment of it is from the hand of a God who is taking your faith and He is driving it into the fire of affliction and He is strengthening it. He is purifying it so that you believe 
even more, that you trust Him even more, that you delight in Him even more, and that your hope is even more in Him than it was before. Do you believe that? So these are just some of the reasons that we have to hope in First Peter up till now. And so then Peter says, look at verse 13, in light of that, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, what does he say? Hope fully. In this verse, hope fully is the main verb. The other two, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, are participles. They are participles. They are verbal adjectives. They are, they are modifying the main verb, which is hope. You are being commanded, hope. Set your hope. Be setting your hope. And how you are to do that is by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, I know that's a little difficult to see in, maybe in your translations here, but that's where some maybe Bible study tools, a good study Bible, uh, some, some online resources like Blue Letter Bible uh, that, that give you some insights into the original text would actually show you that. But you get the idea from, from your English translation here. But I just want to show you that. The main verb is to hope. And how we're to do that, if we follow Peter's logic here, is to prepare your mind for action and to be sober-minded. This is how we are to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. And this happens all over the place. The main verb is supported and modified by these other uh, uh, descriptions, these other actions to give us insight into how we're to do the thing that we're being commanded to do. Okay? You tracking with me? Yeah? All right. I saw a lot of blank stares out there. Uh, So the main verb is set your hope fully and is modified by these other Phrases, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So here's the image. Here's the image. Preparing your minds for action. Literally, it is girding up the loins of your mind, which again is is a bit of a strange, it's a little out of date for us, uh, but it's a good picture. Girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, The ancient practice of gathering up one's robes. In fact, I think Phil alluded to this the other day. Gathering up one's robes when needing to move in a hurry is the picture that Peter is applying to this text here. He's metaphorically applying it to to your thought process. It means pull up, gather up all of the loose ends, get, get your thinking in order, get your mind straight, get it fixed, get it focused. And reject the hindrances, the distractions, the things that are keeping you off of doing what the author is telling you to do here, which is to get your hope on Christ. And so what is this kind of metaphorical picture, what does this picture do for us as we think about setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us? Well, the image, again, is is girding up the loins of your mind, and maybe you could put it this way. You take your mind... And you've got loose stuff in your mind. You've got loose thoughts. You've got scattered thoughts. You've got distractions. You've got sin. You've got temptations. Gather all of that stuff up. And you say, Lord, I want my mind to be clear. I want to think straight. I want to be pleasing to you. I want my every thought and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable to you, O Lord. And you gather those things up. And you say, Lord, all of that is keeping me from being ineffective for your glory, for the mission that's at hand. I am distracted, I'm 
discouraged, I'm tempted, I'm uh, thinking evil thoughts, wrong thoughts about you or about others. I'm going to gather that all up so that I can be ready to run the race. And, And what Peter is asking us to do here is to think seriously about life. To think not only seriously, but energetically. You imagine if someone was getting ready to fight a fight, right? You know, I think of like a, you know, a duel. When there's two opposing forces and the, and the champions would come out and they say, hey, I challenge you to a duel. And the guy's not like, all right. And he kind of girds up his, you know, his clothes and he kind of looks for his sword. Where did I put that thing? No, he's ready for action quick, right? He girds up the loose things and he's ready for action. He's ready to go. There's energy involved. And we're doing this, Peter says, by while being sober-minded. Now, when you think of a sober-minded person, I just wonder, who comes to mind? Who's someone in your life that is sober-minded? You think, that dude is, or woman, that guy, or gal, they are sober-minded. They are dignified. There's a weightiness to their life. There's a seriousness to their walk with the Lord. Who is that person? Well, the person that comes to mind ought not to be someone who is just, in fact, they probably aren't, someone who's just boring. Uh, They lack joy. No, that is not what Peter is saying here, right? That is not what it means to be sober-minded or to have have your mind prepared for action. In, In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's the very opposite. These are, these are active words. These are uh, activities that intensely focused people do. And being sober is the opposite of what? Being, say it with me, drunk, right? To be sober is the opposite of being drunk or to be intoxicated. We're to be girding up the loins of our mind. We're to be preparing our minds for action, in light of all of the things that Peter has just said, give us hope. And we're going to do this by, by being, while being sober-minded, not intoxicated, not out of control, not living wildly or carelessly. Now, that's convicting, isn't it? You could be wild and out of control, lacking self-control, or, or the next day you could be discouraged and bummed out and, in the, and, and sick with the blues, and discouraged. And Peter is saying, stop. Get it all together. Take a minute. Gra- gather up your thoughts and remember who it is that has saved you, that is sanctifying you, and that is going to be with you, believers, in, in the first century here, as you suffer when trials come, when persecutions come, because if necessary, and sometimes it is necessary in the sovereignty of God that we will go through trials of various kinds, you are going to need to put away intoxicated, drunken, out of control, living and thinking, laziness, discouragement, and you need to focus your heart and mind on Christ. Now think about sober-minded for a moment here. Alcohol isn't a stimulant. It, it, it doesn't help you with energy, right? So that's why uh, Paul is saying be sober-minded rather than intoxicated with the things of the world. It is a what? Depressant. 
It doesn't stimulate it. It stunts control and speech and brain function. And that's why Christian leaders are to not be drunk. That is why godly men who are called to lead the church must not be addicted to much wine because when they get a call at 10 o'clock at night that a crisis has occurred, they need to be able to get on the road and drive to minister to those people. You understand? Christians ought not to be intoxicated spiritually by this world, but fixated on the life to come. And so, how do we do this? Peter, great. Really, really interesting thoughts here. Girding up the loins of your mind, being sober-minded. How do we do this? How do we obey this command? And again, all of that to, to help inform us how we set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us at the, at the appearance of Jesus Christ, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we obey this command to set our hope fully in this way? Well, here's Peter's logic. I, I, I came up with a phrase this morning. We call it petrine protein. Uh, Peter's logic strengthens us. You want some meat to chew on. You want to be strengthened in your spiritual walk. You need some of the protein, some of the stuff that Peter has to offer to strengthen your faith. And here's his logic. And I think, I think this paragraph will be life-changing for us if we get it. I think Peter's logic is this. The secret to obedience is the command, uh, the secret to the obedience to the command to hope, to hope. That's the command. The secret to obedience to the command to hope is to fill the mind with the grace or on the grace that has been given to you in first peter up till now you see the secret to obeying the command to have hope to be hoping to be living with the hope of eternity that is changing you and driving the way that we live that is fueling our evangelism that gets us up out of discouragement and to fight sin is to do this to fill your mind with the grace that has been given to you in Jesus Christ, in First Peter, and in the Scriptures up till this point, so that you will hope fully. And let me just remind you again of what those things are. Mercy that you did not deserve, that you have been born again. The miraculous has happened. You have come to life where you were once dead in your spiritual being. You have been given a living hope. Christ raised up from the dead. And he's seated at the right hand. And he's coming again. What else? You have an inheritance that is coming. You need to fill your mind with that truth. And it is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Nothing can change it or shake it. And he will give it to you. And it's being kept for you. And you are being guarded for it. You must fill your mind You must feed your mind on that grace that has been given. And more grace that will come. Look at what he says in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. More mercy, more grace, more joy, more delight. No more sin. 
No more tears. No more loss. No more pain. No more bitterness. All of that. Grace that will come. No more insecurities. No more fear of man that keeps you from sharing the gospel with people that you know will perish without it. All of that. Grace is coming. And you must fill and feed your mind on it. So how do you do that? Very practically. Open your Bible. Get a pen. Get a highlighter. Circle the things that you see in verses 3-7. through Do it today. Fill your mind. Feast your mind on it with a pen. And call them to mind. Think about those things. That's what Peter is telling you to do. Prepare your mind. Remember, the prophets in verses 10 to 12, they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you. Get a pen and circle that. Lord, thank you for serving me through the apostles or through the prophets. They were predicting the the coming of the Messiah who came to save a wretched sinner like me. Fill your mind with it. Circle it. Highlight it. Get your Bible in front of you. Throw your phone out the window on the way home today if it's distracting you from getting this in your hand. Or unless you're really disciplined, uh, well, I'll just say get a real Bible. Start there. Call these things to mind. Think about them. That's what Peter is saying. Don't you see it? Prepare your minds, your mind for action. And being sober-minded. In other words, the mind serves the heart. The mind, what we fill our minds and our hearts with fuels our hope. Are you hopeless? And get your mind on the grace and the mercies that are yours in Christ. This is why we say, preach the gospel to yourselves. This is why we sing songs about the story so that we're reminded. But here's the problem. We forget. We forget. And you forget exponentially more and faster the less that you have this in front of you day by day. It's true. And so a pastor's job isn't only to tell people to read their Bibles, but that's one of our jobs. Read your Bible. Fill your mind, feed your mind with the grace of God that has been revealed to you and will be revealed to you in the pages of Scripture, or you will be hopeless, you will feel hopeless, you will be discouraged, sin will be just an enemy to you that you can't shake because you're not feeding your mind with the truths that you need to combat it. And how convicting is that? Even this week, just discouraged by stubborn sin in my life. Sharing those things with another brother helps me to remember that I'm not a slave to my sins anymore. I've received mercy. I've been given grace. I'm not a slave. And so believer, if the Bible is boring to you, Because you aren't preparing your mind for action and energetically thinking about the achievements of Christ and aren't saturating your mind with those things, the answer isn't complex. It's open God's Word. Find His grace. Circle it. Highlight it. Write it down. Meditate on it. Thank God for it. Share it with someone else. And this is how we prepare our minds for obedience and for action and for Christian living. Maybe you're wondering if this is anywhere else in the Scriptures where we're commanded to do these kinds of things. Well, turn with me briefly to Psalm 119. 
Probably half of your Bibles just flip there anyways. Psalm 119. Listen to verses 9 to 12. Psalm 119. Verses 9 to 12. To see that this is exactly what the Lord has prescribed for us to do. To keep our, heads in, uh, keep our hearts in the fight and our heads in the game. Listen, you, you'll, you'll hear some words, some very petrine words here. How can a young man keep his way pure? Young man, old man, young woman, old woman. By guarding it according to your word. Your way will be kept pure by his word. With my whole heart I seek you. Your heart, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as in all riches. It's all over the Bible. Psalm 19, verses nine, uh, 10 to 11. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible is boring to us, if our hope doesn't seem very hopeful, if it seems like it's deflated and weak and doesn't have anything to really offer you day in and day out, it's because... We are not preparing our minds for action by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us and the grace that has been given to us. Are you being deflated and depressed spiritually like like too much alcohol does to the body? Are you lacking joy and hope? Then recall what Christ has done. Recall the communion achievements of Christ. His death, His body, His blood poured out for you. Brothers and sisters, if those aren't precious to us, then of course worship will be lame. Of course we won't be sharing the gospel. Of course we won't be praying with our wives. Of course. What goes on in the Christian's mind, Peter says, transforms the Christian's life. That's true for me, and it's true for you. What do you think about when you can think about anything? Jot that down for a few days in a row. This is why we're to be ready. This is how we are to be ready to do even what Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter 3.15 as it relates to sharing our hope with others. Listen to this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone or or give a reason to anyone who asks you for a reason, excuse me, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness. I think half or 75% of our evangelistic fears could just be wiped away if all we would do is just say, can I just tell you how God has been merciful to me? Can I share with you the grace of God that has been poured out on me, a sinner who once hated him but now loves him? 
You don't have to know all of the reasons that a Muslim is not a Christian or that a a person growing up in the Catholic Church doesn't actually have the gospel. You don't have to know all of those reasons. You just need to be ready to give a reason, a defense, by sharing the hope of the gospel that has transformed you. Give reasons for the hope that you have in Christ and you will be helped in your evangelism by just thinking on the hope that we have. He's given us mercy. He's caused us to be born again. We were dead and now we're alive. He's keeping an inheritance for us. He gave His Son as the greatest gift the universe has ever known and He opened my eyes to see my need for it and He caused me to wrap my arms around it as He wrapped His arms around me in love. How about that for Joyful evangelism. Brothers and sisters, we have to put our mind into the service of hoping. And if we don't, then we will be hopeless. We will forget how good of a gift the grace of God is. And we will lose sight of eternity. We will live Short, with short-sightedness. We will not live with the long view of the, the success of the gospel and the Great Commission. We'll forget why we support missionaries. We'll forget why it is that we've been called ambassadors for Christ. We'll forget why we should serve in children's or youth ministry. It's because God, in His grace, is saving sinners And he's bringing them all the way to glory. And so you must put your mind into the service of hoping, dear saint. And so here's the seed and the source and the foundation of our sanctification, which is really the next point in the text. And we're just going to barely look at that this morning. But this is the seed and, and, and the source and the hope of our sanctification. Remember, we can't get it backwards. We must have hope. We must have experienced the grace and the mercy of God and Jesus Christ before we can have holiness. And if holiness sounds like a burden and not a joy to us to say, Lord, whatever you say, like the psalmist, I want to do it. I delight in your commands then it might be because you don't have hope. You don't know grace yet. You haven't come to Christ as a needy sinner and said, Lord, save me. If you don't love holiness, it might be because you haven't experienced the grace of God and to which Jesus says, come. Be forgiven. Lay down your sin. Come to me, all of you who are weary. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If you confess that you have been striving on your own righteousness to make yourself acceptable to God and say, Lord, I'm done with that. Jesus was righteous on my behalf. In fact, listen to this from Titus chapter 3. If you will say, if you, can, if you can't say this, then you can say this today by God's grace because He is calling you to believe. Paul says in Titus 3, He saved us. He saved you. Not the other way around. You did not get God to save you. 
If you ask the question, how is anyone saved or how does anyone come to believe, it's that God saves. God is the one who calls and He saves. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. There's one of those benefits of Christ again, one of those things that we're to fill our minds with, His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we who were not just and righteous have been declared righteous by His grace, might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, if you have not said, yes, Christ, you are Lord and Master and Sovereign, and you alone can save, then of course holiness is not appetizing. Of course sin does not grieve you to the point of repentance. But today is a day of salvation. The Lord's arm is not so short that He cannot save. He can and He will. So would you come to Him? Would you come to Christ today so that you can have your hope fully set on future grace? Enjoy the grace of salvation now and have future grace guaranteed. And to get your mind set and fixed on His grace towards you in Christ. So we'll have to look at this another time. But this is the root. This is the seed. This is the foundation for our holiness To number two, seek the holiness that only our Father can grant. The only way that we can do the second command in verse 14 is if we have received mercy. And so I'll just say this as as a conclusion. Friends, we cannot confuse justification and sanctification. If we do that, if we, if we get to trying to be sanctified or try to start living holy lives before we have been declared righteous through the blood of Christ, by faith and repentance, which is the gift of God, then it'll kill our joy. And if we try to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just start obeying without remembering the grace of God that we've received in Christ, without confessing our sin and reminding ourselves of the mercy of God, then we will grow discouraged and deflated. The order matters. If we want to be sanctified, we must be justified. If we want to see Christ formed in us, we must be saved first. And so some of you think, That because you walked an aisle or you prayed a prayer that you're a Christian, because you go to church, that somehow that has some magical power to effect some change in your life. But it's only temporary. What you need is to bow the knee to King Jesus and to say, Lord Jesus, I confess, I repent, I turn from my self-righteousness. I turn from trying to make myself acceptable by deeds of righteousness on my own and I look to Christ who alone is righteous for me. Do that today. Don't wait another moment. What a blessing it is to know that God loves to save sinners like that. And so, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, 
This is the great hope and the joy in the message of the cross. That our justification is by grace alone. The command to be holy has before it the grace of God that has been lavished on us, that has been poured out on us, that we can fill our minds with so that we are ready to run the race, that we can live holy lives. And we'll get more into what it means to live holy lives according to Peter in, in coming weeks. Our justification is by grace alone, not mixed with our merit. It's through faith alone, not mixed with our works. It's on the basis of Christ alone, not mingled not mingling His righteousness with ours. And it's to the glory of God alone, not ours. And so, brothers and sisters, what God commands, which is holiness, which is setting our hope fully on His grace, what He commands, He creates. If you want to obey His commands... He alone can create the heart that loves His commands. And if you don't love His commands and they're a burden to you, come to Him and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Cause me to be born again. Give me new life. Make me to believe what I don't believe, which is that you can satisfy the deepest longings of my soul and not the stuff that I'm chasing after or the lifestyle that I'm tempted and craving that the world says will satisfy Only He can give what He commands. And this is the gospel plea to the religious and to the unbelieving, to those that are religious or those that are self-righteous or unbelieving. You know that Jesus came to save Jews and Gentiles. The gospel from the Old Testament was so that the nations would rejoice and so that God's people would be humble before Him forever, giving Him thanks and rejoicing in His grace toward them. May the Lord intensify our gratitude and fill us with hope and holiness in order that because of the infinite value of our great Savior, we would live lives that are pleasing to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us in verse 17 that for those who call on you as Father, that you welcome as children, children of obedience. And Lord, we want to be children of obedience. But Lord, there are those in this room that have confused the order. They thought, well, I'll go to church. I'll take communion. I'll get baptized. I'll go to camp. I'll go to a different church. But those acts, seeming acts of righteousness, cannot save. Christ, only you can save. Only you can make sons of the devil, sons of God. So we pray that you would. And only you, O Lord, can help us to set our hope fully when we are discouraged or when we are troubled or when we are deflated spiritually. 
to set our minds, to prepare our minds for action and and to be sober-minded so that we are setting our hope on you. Lord Jesus, we know that you're coming. We know that it's true. And so we pray that you would help us to do by your grace alone, through your spirit, what this text commands, which can only be done through your work in us, that we would gather up our minds and our hearts, that we would set our affections on you, that we would desire to be pure in heart, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Even now, O oh Lord, help us to pray, help me to hunger and thirst for righteousness, O oh God. Would you help us to do that for your glory? Thank you that these are not abstract truths, but because of the definite work of Christ, they are possible and they are real and they, they are our reality as we are in Christ. You are transforming us and you are able to help us day by day to be pleasing to you, to fight for holiness, to endure through trials. So thank you, O God. Would you do it more and more for your glory in us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.